when the warm winds of pleasant hearthfire turn cold and bitter, and the days begin to grow short, and the night foul and frostfall. It's at the end when the spirits of Nerd rise and beckon their most grievous of malice among the denizens of Tamriel. It is I, your humble imperial host of unholy horrors, Pincent Vice. And tonight, we will hear a collection of tales of such, where the yearning from beyond the mortal coil of flesh persists into oblivion and must make its will manifest among those who do their bidding, or suffer the unholy consequences of gore and rigor. Let us step back through the ages, to the second, and meet a young woman, Mistress Genevieve, who must meet such a demand from beyond, to gain a long-sought reward. first tale takes us to the province of Glenumbra, during this forgotten era before the Septums, in the city of Daggerfall, where she steps into the doors of an inn named the Rosy Lion, to find those willing to follow her into the pit of hell. She steps inside from the soggy black of another frostfall evening. Well, if there was ever a place to find those I need, this is it. Uh, so then I stab that half-snake, half-lady, the uh, lady thing in the back, and she turned around and growled at me. It was hilarious. And then she said, and I told her, I said, hey, I hear about as ugly as you smell, lady. <laughs> oh, boy, that pissed her off something fierce. I totally had her attention after that. And, yeah, everyone else in the cave did their thing, and I took a couple of hits to the face. It was amazing. Yay! Thank you. Thanks. <laughs> Bingo. The mistress Genevieve immediately began to primp herself in a nearby mirror, paying particular attention to her curvy assets, red flowing hair, and straightening the wrinkles out of her thin and flowing black dress. She turned her quarry and with a shriek, <coughs> began to wor go to work. Oh, by the divines, I am in such peril. Is there no one brave and strong enough to deliver me from my plight? The inn instantly became silent under the mistress's harried requests. I say, is there w anyone, anyone strong and brave and heroic who, with perhaps, may have some monster slaving experience under their extremely taxed belts to save me from my ultimate peril? Boris, my friend, but article thinks she speaks of us. Huh? What? Oh, oh yeah. Oh, right. Yeah, uh, totally. Hey, a uh, uh, pretty lady is falling apart, uh. Yeah, come on over here. I think we can lend a hand. Oh, would you? That's refreshing news. Indeed, I thought I was going to be standing there howling at the wall for hours until someone would be willing to ch uh, be willing to help someone as frail as I. Ah, uh, no need to howl for hours. Uh, we can totally lend a hand for, uh, you know, whatever ails you, my dear. Come, tell us your story of woe. Yes, please have a seat near Argo. Explain what makes one so fair, so sad, and... Welcome to the Rosy Lion Inn. You're new to our little hovel, and therefore you get all the mead you can drink for free. My good friend and employee, Jazzledar, will be happy to serve you. 
Also, you should know that he does some entertaining on the side, too. He is quite adept at telling you your fortunes in the ways of the Khajiit. In the Khajiit, Jezeldar, already pouring a stout mead for the fair woman, began to cross the floor from the bar to where the group was standing around. As the mistress sits at the table, the group revels are focused upon. Ah, yes. This one is very good at reading the tea leaves and garnering the meaning of the night skies for the lives of those who live under them. If you like, I may do so for you, for a bit of coin, of course. Bah! Pay no attention to that fuzzy fraud. He peddles in nothing more than skooma-laden nightmares induced by heavy but heavenly bodies so far away. No warmth can be derived. Rargo, intoxicated by the mistress's beauty and unable to control his charms, placed his furry paw on her hand and brought it up to his lips to kiss. <laughs> Rargo, you know nothing about the moon and the prophecies of which I speak. But why should I be so insulted by a Khajiit with sticky paws? At least Rargo knows which warm heavenly bodies need Rargo's attention. Rargo places a gentleman's kiss upon the mistress's hand, and with a wink and a glint in his eye, releases her from his touch. Mistress Genevieve blushes furiously and turns her attention to the mead just placed in front of her. From deep within the pages I see, this one says this and that, but evil in here is free. It comes on a cold night without stars, but of its travels I fear not very far. For those who shout and revel and drawl, I see those for whom the bell tolls. Ah, jeez. <laughs> Pay no attention to that crazy old coot. That's our friend, Sturgis. Yeah, he's a moth priest. Uh, no one understands him, nor his interjections or his modeling, least of all himself. Blind may be, but I feel evil this eve. Here and there, and the return of some, my swelling dread, and we're all done. Something evil this way comes. Okay, I think Sturgis has had his last maid for tonight. That's bullshit. I'm fine. So stop scaring everybody, you crusty old coot. By the eight, you've rattled everyone's nerves, not the least of which our new lady friend. Coming up from a long drink of mead, the mistress wiped her red lips with her sleeve and slammed the flagon down on the table, and then burped. Never. Not after what I've seen and what I know. That old man may be a little crazy, but his idle fantasies speak of my grandmother, I think. Your mother's mother, you say? My... How can one so lovely say she is related to the kinds of evil our old friend says is lurking? Argo refuses to believe such ironies. Ah, come, come now, let the girl speak. You know, for, uh, you know, if there's evil about him, uh, surely you found the right group. Really? How's that? Oh, smooth Argo over there. Uh, you'll find none better with a pair of daggers in his hands. Pause. Uh, right, yeah, air quote pause, whatever. You don't say air quotes, you lunk. You're supposed to move your fingers in the air like they're quotation marks, and then you emphasize the word. You look like a malformed imbecile every time you do it wrong. Hey, buddy. You totally ruined my epic introduction of our group, you old bat. And, uh... I don't think anyone here understood what you just said. Uh, yeah, I got it. Yeah, I know. 
Yeah, so you know, no one understands you, man. Brargo's eyes began to squint as he looked at Horace. Not sure if serious. Now, uh, now where was I? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, Riargo. Yeah, he kills things fast, and yeah, he likes to do it from behind. You know, with two daggers. Uh, and we got uh, Jazzledar over there. Yeah, he don't look like much, but man, that cat can kill shit with his staff faster than he can shoot out those flaming balls. Wow. Phrasing, man. Sweet defines. What I think my zealous companion means to say is that this one is quite adept at the art of magical interlude. That manifest themselves into Nern by my will, and can be quite destructive indeed. Jezeldar grabs a wooden staff adorned with a half moon on its top, which was lazily leaning on the table everyone was gathered around, began to conjure a ball of pure flame, which left the top of the staff and began to float in the air. Jezeldar, to the wonderment of his companions, began to wave his paws in the air and the ball of white-hot flames, no larger than a child's toy, began to follow the Khajiit's masterful gestures before snuffing it out with a gesture of his paw across its circumference. All right, like I said, flaming balls. (laughs) And what, brave knight, is it that you do do here? Oh, me? Uh, I got a sword and a a shield. I punch things in the face. That's pretty great. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Um, lady, uh. Oh, I am the Mistress Genevieve. Apologies, Mistress, for our rudeness. We did not ask you your name, and our boisterous friend has gone and introduced our group. He didn't introduce me. Hey, uh, you're not a part of the adventuring party. You know what I'm saying? That's because you don't value my insights. Oh, you're blind, and you're old. And you can't heal either. And, uh, for some reason we can only bring four people into a dungeon. That's bullshit. Never mind them. Come, please. Tell us why you have come seeking help. Yes, it is very nice to see we have put smile on your beautiful face. But a job must be done, and we are the ones who must do it. Then I'll tell you the tale and all of it, just so you know what you're getting into. The mistress began to gaze into the small flames of the candles on the table as she started her tale, absently playing with the empty flagon of mead in front of her. Noticing, Jezeldar then poured more mead into her cup, listening intently to her story. She started the tale 100 years ago in these very woods they were in with her grandmother, who was a weirist. The mistress's grandmother started to experiment in new forms of magicka among the living, and her goal was simple. She needed to understand the magicka of light that the weirises used. She grew frustrated and impatient that none of the weirises could explain the origin of their power, just that it existed and they knew how to use it. Her grandmother, Genevieve, of whom the mistress was named after, began to search for what she called the spark of life by examining life closer. She would look into the grass and newly hewn lumber, and where she found nothing, she feared life's spark was either too deep in the ground or had escaped from the cut trees. To the weirdest's horror, she started to cut down trees in hopes of catching the moment the light left the foliage, but 
nothing could be seen of the spark, even if it left before her eyes. She assumed the spark of life must only exist in sentient beings, and began capturing and killing insects to observe it. Once the Weirises observed this of her, they exiled her to the Fens. There she grew old, lonely, and mad. As her own life began to leave her aging body, her heart blackened, and she decided that the spark of life could only be observed within people. She began to lure young adventurers to her cottage in the marsh, and did unspeakable horrors to them. First, she just slaughtered them, but then she turned to torturing them before doing so, each time frustrated and unable to observe what it is that creates life. Oh, harrowing tale to be sure, my lady, but <clears throat> what, uh, what's that have to do with uh, you and, and tonight? Well, she found that spark of life one day when working with black soul gems and the souls of children. Children? And the unborn. By all that is unholy. Yeah. For 50 years, she's holed herself up in the caves nearby, making ready for this night. Now, my family and I have been all too happy to keep her there, believing her insane rants were nothing but that. Rants. However, I went by there today to check on her, and I found piles of black soul gems filled. She wanted me to help her. She wanted me to help release the souls from the gems into this graveyard to animate the dead. And she wants an undead army to sweep across Daggerfell and kill the Weird Sisters and anybody who might stand up against him. The group was silent, for the tale told was more horrific than they could have dreamed, and certainly more horrible than anything they had ever faced. Yeah, it's pretty bad. So, uh, when do you want to start? Sturgis, the moth priest, began to shift his blind gaze upward, as though veiled darkness his shattered sight could only see was the glimpse of the imperceptible, and he was suddenly compelled to describe. The night's horrors have yet to be seen, as the woman of the night controls those she deems. Those who are worthy for her pack, on this night all souls will fill gems black. The Rosy Lion Inn grew so quiet you could hear a pin drop as Sturgis continued. She will call the night first, then her lover and the studious as friend. Lure them into her chamber and prepare for the rend. Their souls will fill gems of black as their bodies will rise to rid the rest of us in an attack. Sturgis stopped and grasped at his chest. He sucked in air, exclaimed suddenly, labored and in torturous pain. <gasps> but first it shall be me, struck remotely. Sturgis the moth priest fell off his chair and collapsed to the floor. Horace, Jezeldar, Rargo, and the barkeep ran to their friend's side. The old man lay limp in the arms of Rargo as he pulled his aged friend up from the floor. Sturgis's eyes, the first time in all the years Rargo knew him, focused on his face as if he could suddenly see with his own eyes once again. There is no quarter for men nor murder tonight. Wait, am I dying? This is bullshit. Who wrote this? 
And so Sturgis lay dead in Rargo's arms. Sleep well. Is, is, is he... He is dead, Cheseltar. Uh, how? how? Uh, you have too much meat for his old heart or something? I'm afraid it's as he said. It must have been my grandmother working remotely. She must have found me and is now about to attack us all. I can heal many things, but freezing the dead? Mm. Hey, wait a minute. You're a healer? Of, of a kind. Uh, we don't have very long. My grandmother is focusing on us, remember? Now, I only feel, I feel like we only have a few minutes left. But, but how can we stand a chance against such a powerful evil? Well, first, we need to protect ourselves from her sight. Then we can go from there, tonight, to her cave, and destroy her once and for all. We must end this blight on Daggerfall, and I'm afraid our time is growing shorter as we speak. Uh, what can I do to help? Do you have a room upstairs I can prepare our group with? Yes, of course. Up the stairs, take any room you want. This is becoming all so sudden for this one. What sort of preparations? Oris, are we even attempting this insanity? Bandits are one thing, Horus. Witches with this kind of power. Your Argo is not sure how we can defeat such evil. Hold fast, friends. Our, uh... New friend here. Uh, she'll heal us if we need, and she'll advise us along the way, too. So, as long as we work together, for Argo, who could stand in the way of your speed? Or your clever spellcraft there, Jazzledar? Or my hardened armor? Or his turn to the mistress. Now, pretty lady, explain to us in detail exactly what you plan to do. Okay, well, it's quite simple. She stood up from her chair, brushed off her form-fitting dress, and began to tell her plan. I know of a way to hide ourselves from my grandmother's sight. It's a very intense spell for me, since it requires some planar shifting. However, it'll help us move freely to her cave in the woods, and pass beyond all her spell boundaries and ruins, and we should catch her by surprise, and she'll never see us coming. It'll be easy to kill her during her conjuring. What do you mean, planar shifting? in multiple planes of existence at once. Well, uh, no one's interested in that kind of talk. All right, listen, let's, uh, let's get on with it, shall we? Uh, what do we need to do to start? Couldn't agree more. Let me take you upstairs, friend. I'll show you what we need to do, and I'll come back down for the rest. You don't mind, Barkeep? Uh, uh, of course not. Uh, do what you will, just hurry so the rest of us aren't in any danger. Of course. The mistress and brave Horace made their way up the stairs, before long, they heard the door close behind them. For what seemed like a few minutes more, the thunder began to crash outside, and sound of preparation could be heard downstairs. Jezeldar took the time to speak to Rargo quietly. What do you make of our new lady-in-waiting upstairs? She seems eager to move forward with us, does she not? Yes, yes. Who could blame her? Such a delicate flower she is. Mistress must be terrified of her grandmother, no? Yes, I suppose. I mean, one would be if they were she, no? Speak plainly, Jazodar. It seems you have much on your mind. Perhaps you should pour yourself some tea and read the leaves when you're done. 
Rargo and Jezeldar both snickered and laughed at Rargo's jest, full well knowing that this was their custom. Suddenly, the mistress appeared at the top of the stairs. Come, my love, Rargo. It's your turn, my friend. Ah, yes. But where is Horace? He's up here with me. He can't come downstairs quite yet due to the preliminary realignment, of course. Come, please let's not waste any more time. Rargo turned to Jazeldar. No doubt the walk to the cave will be long indeed. We will have more time to talk about this on the way, no? But of course, my friend. This one will see you on the other side. Rargo held the last of his mead and swallowed it. He slammed the flagon down to the table, stood up, steadied himself, fixed his leather jerkin, and made his way up the stairs. Glory and the mistress beckoned. Argo shall not wait for a second call. Indeed, my love. Indeed. The barkeep poured himself a stout mead and drank it all without putting the flagon down for a moment. You seem nervous, Shaveskin. Yeah, it, it, it was just something Sturgis said before he passed. Oh, and what was this? thunder crashed again above their heads and both the Khajiit and the barkeep felt that it had clashed a little too close for comfort. All of it, Jezeldar, all of it. All of what? The mistress appeared again at the top of the stairs. Come, my wise and studious friend. It's time for you to join your fellow heroes. Jezeldar guzzled the last of his mead, just as Rargo had done. He stood up, placed a caring paw on Sturgis's forehead as if to say goodbye, and began to walk toward the stairs. Jezeldar, maybe... maybe we should have a moment to speak before you go. Do you not hear the thunder, Barkeep? The hour grows late, and maybe you should leave the heroics to the heroes and simply tend bar. The Barkeep looked affronted. Had it not been for the manners his mother instilled to him, he might have given to walking right up those steps and giving her the punch in the face that comment deserved. Come, my friend. This one is sure. Both lack of time and the call of emergency has made our new friend's tongue sharper than meant. We will have time to speak after a few moments. This one will be back down once Horace and Rargo. The mistress and this one have a chance to complete the procedure. Come, Jazzledar. Your friends are awaiting you, too. Jezeldar drunkenly crossed the room and up the stairs as the mistress beckoned. The barkeep nervously watched him do so, until Jezeldar passed out of his sight. His gaze turned to the window by his bar as he picked up his flagon and crossed the room toward it, hoping some glimmer in this dark night would pass some image of hope in the bleak. Confusion fell over him as he strained against the reflections in the dark glass to see what his eyes were ill-equipped to prove true. Unable to contain his anxiety, he threw the window open in a hurry and recoiled in horror at the sight. By the eight, Jezeldar, you're in danger! The barkeep slammed the window hard and dashed across the floor toward the stairs. Meanwhile... Come on in, Jezeldar. It'll only take a moment. The door closed tight behind Jazeldar and the mistress. The room was very tiny, 
Not a hint of Horace or Argo was present, save for two black soul gems on a counter along the wall. Jezeldar turned with a jerk, seeing the black soul gems were glowing. What is the meaning of this, mistress? The mistress removed a black soul gem from her pocket and placed it on the counter, pulling a dagger from her waist, its blade glowing in a purple hue. They heard a loud noise downstairs, and the barkeep screaming for Jazeldar. You are about to join your friends, my love. The mistress drove the dagger into Jazeldar's chest, and a loud thunderclap came from the motion as his body and soul evaporated into dust and was sucked up by the black soul gem next to them. Just then, the barkeep began pounding on his fist on the door, screaming, Jazeldar, it hasn't been raining outside. How can there be thunder without rain? How? The door swung open under the banging of the barkeep's fist. There in the room before him was a shattered window leading outside, and a tiny vacant room filled with more questions than friends. The rain began to come down again, and then harder than moments before, and there was no more lightning, not even as the dead arose from their graves hours later. But that is a story for another night. There is nothing more evil in all of Nern than an empty soul gem and a spellcaster looking to fill it. For one young man, he would learn this all too well. For the Dramar of Oblivion care not for noble intentions nor the innocence of those who drag them into the Mundus. Rather... Their only concern is to drag you into the hell from which they pour forth. A Tragedy in Black By Anonymous A folktale from the time of the Oblivion Crisis The Dramora looked on the young boy with disdain. He looked to be no more than 17 or 18, on the cusp of manhood. You? You have summoned me? Mother says I'm good with spells. Someday, I'm going to be a wizard. Maybe even an archmage. And what would your mother know of magic, boy? Well, she's a wizard. She's an enchanter at the Arcane University. <laughs> Another dabbler in the mystic arts. I'm certain she's barely mediocre. You shut up! She, she, I read the scroll! I, I get to tell you what to do! The Dramar was silent. Compulsion bound his voice. I, I, I want, I, I want to know how to make, how to make a dress. A magic dress. I need it for her birthday. The Dramar's answer was more silence. You have to tell me. It's the rules. You have to tell me. Freed from the previous convulsion, the Dramora answered first. You need a soul gem. I happen to have one, and would gladly give it to you for so noble a cause. Really? Wait, why, why do I need it? 
With a hidden smile, the Dromori handed over a dull black gem. Well, it's not enough to cast a spell upon an inert object. Magic requires thought, intent, and will and emotion. The soul powers the enchantment. The bigger the soul, the more powerful the enchantment. Okay, so how big is the one in the soul gem? Oh, that one's empty. You'll have to fill it. You can hold the largest souls easily in this. Do you know how to do that? No. The young man said sullenly. Let me show you. You cast the spell like this. The tendrils of the soul trap spell spilled from his fingers and surrounded the boy. The young man's eyes went wide. I didn't feel anything, he complained. How about now? The Dramor asked, plunging his talons into the youth's ribcage. His heart beat only once before it was pulled from his chest. Quickly, the Dramor snatched back the black soul gem. Just as the youth died, his soul tried to flee, but was trapped by the spell and drawn into the gem. Only black soul gems can hold the souls of men and elves. Your mother obviously never told you, never accept a freely given gift from a summoned Dramora. He said to the corpse, you see, it breaks the conjuration, freeing the summoned from the summoner. Now, let's go find your mother. After all, I have another black soul gem. Pupils often are filled with the hubris of ignorance, but masters can be no better. For one red god girl, she must rise above her torment to prove that sometimes the master is no more than an apprentice. And there is no better teacher than racing against a clock in the undead in The Locked Room by Porbent the Tumbley. Yana was precisely the kind of student her mentor Arthcomu despised. The professional amateur. He enjoyed all the criminal types who were his usual pupils at the stronghold. From the common burglar to the more sophisticated blackmailers. Children and young people with strong career ambitions, which the art and science of lockpicking could facilitate. They were always interested in the simple solutions, the easy way. But people like Yana were always looking for exceptions, possibilities, exotica. For pragmatists like Arth Camus, it was intensely vexing. The Red Guard maiden would spend hours in front of a lock, prodding at it with her wires and picks, flirting with the key pins and driver pins, exploring the hall with a sort of casual fascination that no delinquent possesses. Long after her fellow students had opened their test locks and moved on, Yana was still playing with hers. The fact that she always opened it eventually, no matter how advanced a lock it was, irked Arth Camus even further. 
You are making things much too difficult, he would roar, boxing her ears. Speed is of the essence, not merely technical know-how. I swear that if I put a key to the lock right in front of you, you would still never get around to opening it. Yana would bear Arthur abuse philosophically. She had, after all, paid him in advance. Speed was doubtless an important factor for the picker trying to get somewhere he wasn't supposed to go with the city guard on patrol behind him, but Yana knew it wouldn't apply to her. She merely wanted the knowledge. Arthkamu did everything he could to think of to encourage Yana to move faster. She seemed to perversely thrive on his physical and verbal blows, spending more and more time on each lock learning its idiosyncrasies and personality. Finally, he could bear it no longer. Very late one afternoon, after Yana had dawdled over a perfectly ordinary lock, he grabbed the girl by her ear and dragged her to a room in the stronghold, far from the other students, an area they had always been forbidden to visit. The room was completely barren except for one large crate in the center. There were no windows, and no other door except for the one leading in. Arthkamu slammed his student against the crate and closed the door behind him. There was a distinct click of the lock. This is the test for my advanced students, he laughed behind the door. See if you can escape. Yana smiled and began her usual slow process of, the, of massaging the lock, gaining information. After a few minutes had gone by, she heard Arthkamu's voice again call out from behind the door. Perhaps I should mention that this is a test of speed. You see the crate behind you? It contains a vampire ancient who has been locked in here for many months. It is absolutely ravenous. In a few minutes' time, the sun will have completely set. And if you have not opened the door, you will be nothing but a bloodless husk. Yana considered only for a moment whether Ark Camus was joking or not. She knew he was an evil, horrible man, but to resort to murder to teach his pupil? The moment she heard a rustling in the crate, any doubts she had were erased. Ignoring all her usual explorations, she jammed her wire into the lock, thrust the pegs against the pressure plate, and shoved open the door. Ark Camus stood in the hallway behind, laughing cruelly, so now you have learned the value of fast work. Yana fled from Arthkamu's stronghold, fighting back her tears. He was certain that she would never return to his tutelage, but he considered that he had taught her at last a va very valuable lesson. When she did return the next morning, Arthkamu registered no surprise, but inside he was seething. I'll be leaving shortly. She explained quietly, but I believe I've developed a new type of lock, and I'd be grateful if you could give me your opinion of it. Arthkamu shrugged and asked her to present her design. I was wondering if I might use the vampire room and install the lock. I think it would be better if I demonstrated it. Arthkamu was dubious, but the prospect of the tiresome girl leaving at last put him in an excellent and even indulgent mood. He agreed to give her access to the room. For all morning and most of the afternoon, she worked near the slumbering vampire, removing the old lock and aiding her new prototype. Finally, she asked her old master to take a look. 
he studied the lock with an expert eye and found little to be impressed with. This is the first and only pick-proof lock, Yana explained. The only way you can open it is to have the right key. Arthgimu scoffed and let Yana close the door, shutting him in the room. The door clicked and he began to go to work. To his dismay, the lock was much more difficult than he thought it would be. He tried all his methods to force it and found that he had to resort to his hatred student's method of careful and thorough exploration. I need to leave now, called Yana from the other side of the door. I'm going to bring the city guard to the stronghold. I know that it's against the rules, but I really think it's for the welfare of the villagers not to have a hungry vampire on the loose. It's getting dark, and even though you aren't able to unlock the door, the vampire might be less proud about using the key to escape. Remember when you said, if I put the key to the lock right in front of you, you'd still never get around to opening it? Wait! Arthkamu yelled back. I'll use the key! Where is it? You forgot to give it to me! But there was no reply. Only the sound of footfall disappearing down the corridor behind the door. Arthkamu began to work harder on the lock, but his hands were shaking with fear. With no windows, it was impossible to tell how late it was going to be. Where minutes were flying by or hours? He only knew that the vampire ancient would know. The tools could not stand very much twisting and tapping from Arthkamu's hysterical hands. The wire snapped in the keyhole, just like a student. Arthkamu screamed and pounded on the door, but he knew that no one could possibly hear him. It was while sucking on his breath to scream again, he heard the distinct creak of the crate behind him opening. The vampire ancient regarded the master locksmith with insane hungry eyes and flew at him with a frenzy. Before Arthkamu died, he saw it on a chain that had been placed around the vampire's neck while it had been sleeping was a key. The dead do rise, and sometimes come for even the most heroic of us all, for no other reason than to torment their souls. As a soldier makes his way through the forests of Nern, he will soon learn that the fear of death on the battlefield is a distant second to what may lurk in the gloom of the trees. The Cabin in the Woods by Mogan, son of Molag Late one night a few seasons ago, a soldier was returning home after several bloody battles. He decided he would save some gold and decided he'd cross the pine forest on foot. First day of his journey was rather uneventful. The soldier stuck to the main path and kept a brisk pace. When it started to get dark, he set up his bedroll, built a small fire, cooked up some rabbit he caught. Fine day indeed, he thought, as he fell asleep. Partway through the evening, the soldier was woken up by soft sobbing in the distance. He grabbed his sword, assuming it to be a bandit trick, but pretended to sleep so he could get the jump on him. After a few minutes, the sobbing started moving away from his camp until he could no longer hear it. For the rest of the night, he slept with one eye open. 
Day two, the soldier awoke from what rotten sleep he could catch and started off through the forest at a quicker pace, intending to put the distance between himself and whatever he heard last night. As the day went on, it began to rain heavy, so the soldier built himself a little shelter for the evening so he could remain dry while he slept. It took him a little longer to fall asleep with thoughts of the previous night fresh in his mind, but eventually he did sleep. This time he awoke to sobbing that sounded like it was right outside his shelter. The soldier grabbed his sword and crawled out of the shelter. In front of the fire, he saw the back of a ghostly woman sobbing into her hands. The soldier mustered his courage and asked her what was wrong. No answer. He began to slowly approach, but before he could reach her, she turned around and screamed at him. The ghostly woman raised an axe and began to run at the soldier, disappearing before she made contact. The soldier took off into the night with just his sword in hand. He ran until the first light of dawn, where he started down the road again, as fast as he could move. The third day was bright and sunny, but the soldier, rattled and sleepless, didn't even notice. He moved as fast as he could, trying to get through the forest before nightfall. As darkness began to fall, he saw a cabin just off the road and thought to himself, it'd be a good place to hunker down for the night. After arriving at the cabin, he spent some time blocking the doors and the windows. Nothing would get in. Despite his preparations, he could not sleep. He sat in what used to be the cabin's bedroom staring at the barricaded door, shaking. Eventually, he could keep his eyes open no longer, and he fell asleep. This time he awoke to laughing on the other side of the barricaded door. It sounded like the, the woman from before, but he refused to believe it was her. The soldier burst through the barricaded door into the main room to find the ghostly woman from the night before, staring at the ground, laughing hysterically with axe in hand. He began to relentlessly attack the ghostly woman, but he, he could feel his strikes were less effective. He used a scroll, a firebolt, which drew a scream from her as she exploded, disappearing. The ordeal was over. The ghost was gone. The soldier slept well that night. And the next day, made excellent distance through the woods. As the sun began to set, came out of the other side of the forest and looked back, remembering the days before. As he turned and started walking away from the woods, he could swear he heard the sobbing once again. evening of witches, the undead and ghosts have come to a close, but the witches festival here in Tamriel still goes on. Keep close the lessons of the night, lest you become prey to the horrors in the black. Safe night, keep watch, and unpleasant dreams. <laughs> Ha 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 
eerie sight For my monster from his slab began to rise And suddenly, to my surprise He did the match He did the monster match The monster match It was a graveyard smash He did the match It got on in a flash He did the match He did the monster match wow. From my laboratory in the castle east wow. To the master bedroom where the vampires The girls all came from their humble abode to get a jolt from my electrode. They did the match. They did the monster match. The monster match. It was a graveyard smash. They did the match. It got on in a flash. They did the match. They did the monster match. The zombies were having fun. The party had just begun. The guests included Wolf. And his son. The scene was rocking over digging the sounds. Igor on chains backed by his baying hounds. The coffin bangers were about to arrive with their vocal group, the Crypt Kicker Five. They played the match. They played the monster match. The monster match. It was a graveyard smash. They played the match. It got on in a flash. They played the match. They played the monster match. Out from his coffin, Rack's voice did ring. Seemed he was troubled by just one thing. Opened the lid and shook his fist and said, Whatever happened to my Transylvania twist? It's now the match. It's now the monster match. The monster match. And it's a graveyard smash. It's now the match. It's caught on and fly. It's now the match. It's now the monster match. Now everything's cool, Drax a part of the band And my monster mash is the hit of the land For you, the living, this mash was meant to When you get to my door, tell them what it's said Then you can mash Then you can monster mash The monster mash And do my graveyard smash Then you can mash You'll catch on in a flash Then you can mash Then you can monster mash
creatures crawl in search of blood to terrorize your neighborhood. And whosoever shall be found without the soul for getting down must stand and face the hounds of hell and rot inside a corpse's shell. Strange when you're strange when you're strange. 